an entertaining night of action on Long Island ended in anticlimactic fashion. It's Sunday, July 17th. These are the next day takeaways on Keyboard Kimura presented by One Bone. Greetings and salutations, everybody. ESK, Harry Powell, back on your Sunday, back in your earballs, talking about UFC Long Island, UFC on ABC3, as it were, which, as I said in, in the little intro there, ended in anticlimactic fashion. We've got a lot to talk about, so we're just going to jump into it. This was a very entertaining card that provided a bunch of talking points. Harry and I are diving into it right away. Appreciate having you here. We're going to go from top to bottom, as we always do. There's not really a lot to assess coming out of the main event, which ends towards the end of the first round. Brian Ortega dislocates his shoulder um, as Yair Rodriguez is throwing up an, an armbar attempt or as he's trying to extricate his arm from an armbar attempt. It's not the way Yair Rodriguez wants to win. It's not the outcome anyone wanted to see. We were all amped for this fight. It looked like it was going to be the entertaining clash that we expected, but instead we got an injury. And the real the real takeaway to me, or the real question now coming out of it, is what the hell do we do at Featherweight going forward? There was some talk at the post-fight press conference of a fight between Yair Rodriguez and Josh Emmett, potentially for an interim title. That has some people up in arms. I personally think it's a good idea given that Alexander Volkanovsky is going to have some surgery and we know kind of what interim titles are. Harry, you and I didn't get into it because we just decided to jump into this. What are your thoughts on, on running that forward and move and making that fight for that placeholder title? I have no problem with interim titles. I have no problem, especially given that Volko is talking about maybe going up to 155. Maybe he's talking about doing other things with his life. Maybe he just wants a bit of time off, you know, whatever. I've got no problem with the notion of the interim title. However, I do have a problem with the members of the interim title fight. I feel like recency bias is playing a big factor here and that recency bias is that Arnold Allen once again gets forgotten right there is a there is a something piece I think to that I would like to do about how I feel as though British fighters or I should say maybe English fighters with you know Conor McGregor as an exception seem to have a tougher time of getting to the the pinnacle of their divisions than maybe, say, American fighters, right? Or maybe Brazilian fighters. And I feel as though Leon Edwards and Arnold Allen are, are a good case in points to have that conversation for. Arnold, as we've said, is on a ludicrous winning streak at 145. He's not fighting cans. He's fighting good fighters and beating good fighters. And it just feels as though for whatever reason, and maybe we can dive into what those reasons are, he's left behind in the shadows and he's not considered for these big opportunities when somebody like a Josh Emmett, who, let's be honest, is is just as much, uh, for, from a meritocracy perspective, deserving, is, from a skills perspective, is absolutely deserving to be in that conversation. But this isn't a... 
this should not be, I should say, this should not be a, oh, but Emmett won last weekend and I'm thinking about him, so he should get it thing. This should be a, Arnold's been ready for nine months for this and hasn't got it thing. The ironic thing to me is that the one person I wouldn't put in it is Yair Rodriguez coming off of this. I mean, his fight before this was a loss to Max Holloway that he has, anytime you try to compliment him about it, he says, ah, it wasn't that good of a fight. I'm not that happy with what I did. And it wasn't competitive and Max really dominated. Yes, I learned from it, but it is what it is. And so he's the guy to me that coming off of a loss and then an injury stoppage really shouldn't necessarily be there. Now, I understand why he is from a, name perspective and i think that goes a little bit to what you're talking about with arnie um i don't know if anybody calls him arnie but i'm now officially calling him arnie um but i do think there is that larger conversation to be had and i don't think it actually is just british fighters i think there are regions where fighters get limited opportunities i think there's a little bit of I've always wondered because of the way that international events often get booked where fighters from the United Kingdom and Ireland fight on UK cards. Fighters from Europe tend to fight on European cards. Fighters from the Oceanic countries or Asian countries, you know, Pacific Asian countries fight on Australian cards or the occasional Japanese card when we go there, stuff like that. Canadian fighters tend to often get booked, not exclusively on Canadian cards, but for the most part. It feels limiting. It feels like it puts such space between appearances and appearances, as you said, with Josh Emmett, who fought five weeks ago and is fresh in everybody's mind. Appearances and frequency of appearance really seems to matter and seems to be a part of this calculus that goes into these things. Arnold Allen should be fighting next week in London. And if he's not, because there's not an opportunity, then what he did to Dan Hooker in March to get his ninth consecutive win in the UFC and move his winning streak to 11 straight should have been enough and needed to be enough for him to, at the very least, secure a number one contender fight. And yet we all remember back in March, he calls out Calvin Cater, we all groan on the on the live stream and on this podcast that there should have been something better, but that's just not the way it works. And it feels like making this fight potentially between Yair Rodriguez and Josh Emmett sort of ties into all of those things. Yeah, for sure, man. For sure. And, you know, <sighs> Yair didn't look amazing in this fight either right like it looked like he was doing the same things that he did in the max holloway fight now don't get me wrong uh i wasn't i wasn't super impressed by brian ortega either right it felt like brian ortega was doing brian ortega things where he was walking him down walking yaya down and i mean you know we got to the back body lock and i didn't see a plethora of new wrinkles in what he was attempting to do. It was very obvious he was trying to shock him forward to the back and Yair had a wizard and he wasn't doing anything to deal with the wizard. And, you know, it was, it was, it was very much uh, a summation of what we expected to see, right? Now, what's going to happen is if they do Emmett and Yair, 
it's going to be a bit of a war and Emmett probably wins, right? Emmett probably wins because he hits really hard and he has the pressure and whatever. But you could absolutely see Yair land one of the big kicks and maybe Emmett's already quite fragile face. You know, I don't mean that in a in a, in a disrespectful way at all, but something happens and we see an orbital change and we see a jawline change and we see a nose smash across the face and we see this and all of a sudden the fight changes and Yaya Rodriguez is the interim champion and here we are, right? It feels to me as though they're probably going to do Arnold Allen, Brian Ortega or something similar, right? Or they're going to do Arnold Allen and Max Holloway or they're going to do an Arnold Allen and, you know, whatever it is. And it just, or they're going to do Movsar Evloev and Arnold Allen. Right, they're going to do something crazy like that, and I just don't understand it. You know, like I'm going to say this again, and I feel like a broken record that the whole point of a division is you're supposed to create a plethora of questions to ask the champion. That is the whole point of a division, right? And there's a speakers' corners episode that will one day come out because it hasn't been recorded yet, and that's are the notion of divisions changing? And in 10 years, are we even going to have a division in the way that we think about it right now? And I think that's a nice thought experiment to have. But at the moment, what it seems to be is we're saying we've actually got two divisions inside a division. And that's the top three in the champion are one division. And then you've got another division, which is everyone else. And it kind of doesn't matter who what what everyone else consists of so we're going to match the Evloebs and the allens together we're going to match this person like this amazing prospect with this amazing prospect we're going to match this guy and this guy and we're just going to see who rises to the top as the person that earns their way into the top three division which is fucking dumb right because as you've said previously and as we've talked about before it just means that everyone has to go through the max holloway meat grinder and that's not a good test of whether you're worthy of a title shot or not, right? Because on any given day, sorry, I'll finish on this one, maybe less so now, but in those first two fights, a couple of right hands or a couple of checked leg kicks, and Max Holloway's the champion again, you know? Well, and it doesn't create anything new. My thing has always been and will forever be create new title challengers. Push as many people forward in parallel lines as you can until you get to a point where, so if you're going to do, I don't have a problem with doing Arnold Allen and Mavsar Evloev, but the winner of that fight has to fight for the title. They can't then go and fight Calvin Cater and then win that and then go fight Brian Ortega or Max Holloway because then we've burned one guy for no real value, for no real purpose whatsoever. Circling back to this fight real quickly, you frustrated our friend and host of the Severe MMA preview show, Ian O'Neill, when we recorded this week by saying Sorry, Ian, love you. that these guys are kind of, I think he called them great fighters and you were like, would we call them great? And we had a debate about it. And I think this fight illustrates the point you were trying to make. They are both very good at what they do, but they are not the kind of complete fully formed, multi-dimensional talents that the absolute elite fighters in these divisions are and that the emerging set 
of elite prospects and future contenders are. Brian Ortega doesn't have wrestling to where he gets to that back body lock and can instantly get into his stuff. Yair Rodriguez, for all the quickness and all the speed and and quality boxing and, and striking in general that he has, still doesn't have a bunch of, you know, scramble defense and wrestling defense and things like that. And that in this in, in this landscape against a guy like Volkanovsky or a Max Holloway, who neither of these guys were able to get past, limits you. And so if you want to say good fighter, great fighter, we get into semantic arguments and that's fine. But I think it showed sort of the the piece that's missing from either of these guys being absolute top of the food chain fighters in this division. And then in terms of Yair and and Josh Emmett, look, both guys are going to get cut pretty quickly. Both guys are going to bleed a bunch and one of them is going to get their hand raised. Whoever it is, if if this is what comes to pass, I will be happy to see either of them face Alex Volkanovsky at some point down the line if Volko stays in the division whenever that happens. But I'm also not going to get too upset about that conversation being had because we, one, we don't know if it's going to happen. And two, hear everybody shouting all the time about fighter pay. And believe me, I want fighters to make more money. An interim title fight would earn each of these fighters more money. And so mission accomplished. I know it's not the way that that we want fighters to earn more money, but the way that we want fighters to earn more money isn't happening. It's just not. And for me, is as maybe dismissive and frustrating as that is to a lot of people, that's the practical answer. That is the real world answer. It's like when people argue the UFC should do fewer events. Okay, but it's not happening. And so what are the circumstances we have now? What are the ways we can get these athletes more money? Like it or not, putting an interim title on the line is is one of the few ways that we are able to achieve that. And yet when it happens, the instant reaction from a certain segment of the fan base and the populace is, well, this is stupid. And I just don't get it. But we could be here for hours on this. So we will move forward to the co-main event. Allow me to go. I'm glad you didn't allow me to go. Yeah, me and you will do this one later. We'll do we'll do that one as a like Monday special someday when there's no events and nothing really going on. We'll jump on and we'll go like nine hours. We'll do a live stream of that conversation. Co-main event: Amanda Lemos submits Michelle Waterson, who taps on the far side. Kevin McDonald doesn't see it. Lemos releases the hold. Waterson does the admirable thing and says, "Yes, I tapped. The fight is over." This one to me going in was sort of to see where Amanda Lamosh's floor kind of fit. I think the fight with Jessica Andrade established her ceiling. And I think this does establish a bit of a floor. Michelle Watterson Gomez is someone that has forever been pushed as a potential contender, but hasn't quite gotten there. We know the quality that she is. We know the level she represents and what it takes to beat her. And I think Amanda Lamos in doing that, sets herself as clearly a top 10 fighter in this division and how high she can go in that group, just going to depend on matchups and end the night. What did you see from this fight, if anything, that that sort of piqued your interest? This is going to sound really silly, 
but I kind of wish it had gone a little bit longer because Michelle Waterson offers an interesting style, right? Not the easiest style to figure out, especially not with the addition of the wrestling that she's clearly been working pretty diligently to try and fix, right? We've seen her and saw in this matchup that when she went to the wrestling, she was clearly well-drilled. She'd clearly got things to offer in the wrestling. She just got caught, right? And the thing that I am really would have been really interested to see is how does Amanda Lemos deal with the style going forward? Because I don't feel as though I'd had that question truly answered yet. Um, Lemos was certainly finding the overhand right. Uh, she'd made the read for it. But Waterson had some interesting counters. You know, she nearly clipped her with an axe kick. There was some questions of the wrestling. There were some questions of the clinches. She had the sidekick to the body. Like, I'm not saying by any means that Waterson was going to turn that fight around and make the necessary reads to win the fight. We don't know. There was still plenty of time left. But I think there were some interesting questions that could have been asked of Amanda Lemosh that I think with her style are just interesting to see play out, right? Lemos is somebody that is very flat-footed. She walks forward. She's looking for power shots all the time. Uh, Michelle Waterson is the complete opposite, right? She is always on her toes, always on her feet, always moving, and she's always looking to strike and then move, whereas Lemos is looking to stick you and have you not move because you're staring up at the lights, right? So... It would have been interesting to see. However, in the same vein, there's not really somebody else in that division that is like Michelle Waterson. And I don't see many other people trying to emulate Waterson's style going forward. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what piqued my interest was Waterson clearly has made improvements. Yes, she got caught. It is what it is. These things happen in MMA. Uh, I think you're right that Lemos proves that she's in the right place in the division. Uh, she's We're not going to see her fall out of the rankings anytime soon. You could probably see her in one or two fights, getting back into title contention and being in that conversation again. But yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, the, the name that comes to mind, and we don't always just jump into matchmaking and things like that, but the name that comes to mind for me as a next test, as a next kind of similar aspects of Michelle Watterson is Tisha, Tisha Torres. She's going to move a lot. She can grapple. She throws a lot of volume. She has great conditioning. You know she's going to be there for 15 minutes. I don't think Tisha's ever been finished. She's hard to put away. She's hard to corral. It moves Lamosh forward. It gives Tisha another opportunity to sort of further cement herself in this position that she's worked her way back to. To me, that makes sense. Michelle Watterson Gomez, I have no idea where she goes from here. I spoke to her this week. She was very interested in, in this fight and having success and trying to move forward. I think this sort of makes it clear that those days and those opportunities have passed. So it'll be interesting to see as somebody that is, you know, started transitioning into doing some other work, doing some stunt work, doing some acting. She is in a new film that'll be coming out later this year on Netflix, starring Tom Hardy called Havoc. Um, it, it'll be interesting to see where she goes next.
Welterweight fight, Li Jingliang defeats Muslim Salikov by TKO in the second round. Not a lot of, you know, technical aspects to get into with this in terms of the way it played out. Um, but the thing to me, the takeaway for me was this fight is why we always talk about tests and quality of opponent and sort of helps differentiate the difference between that not basically that not all winning streaks are created equal. Salikov entered on a five-fight winning streak. There are certainly some good names in there. Elizio Zaleski Dos Santos, Francisco Trinaldo. But then he takes that step up into the top 15, and he can't do the same things against the Leech, who is just one of these guys that is perfectly situated where he is in this division as, you know, anywhere from 11 to 18, a tough out for everybody, going to be in your face. He's been around for eight years in the UFC now. Good, solid performance. Did a really nice job, I think, of showing poise when he had Salikov hurt. Stuffed the takedown that came that you knew was coming and then set up kind of the kill shots. So a good performance, but not a huge amount of takeaways and, and talking points going forward for these guys. I don't know. I don't know. I think the problem for me is... Salikov is 38. You know, I was watching the fight with Ian and uh, one of the things I said to him was, can you imagine how quick this cunt would have been at 23? Like, can you fucking imagine? (laughs) This man is 38 years old and he's able to throw spinning kicks with that sort of speed, right? right? Like, I think for me, he was winning that fight. Right, up won the first league. round on all three scorecards. A hundred percent. Like the leech looked for the right hand, found it. Fair play to him. He did what he needed to do. I'm not arguing. I'm not, you know, whatever. But he certainly didn't look like he was. It was just one way traffic because it certainly was not that. Right. It was very much Salikov looked good. He looked good, he looked good, and then he looked 38 years old with a younger, slightly fresher, slightly better athlete, just landed the shot, you know? And I mean, what are you going to do? As the elder statesman on this podcast and the elder statesman of most of the conversations that we have on Severe MMA as well, I can tell you from my experience that I know exactly what Muslim Salikov feels like. Now, it's not in cage fighting. It is in golf. It is in basketball. It is in just about everything else. You're you're good right up until you're not. And you're good right up until that energy goes. And then it's just, why are these kids still running up and down the course? We played golf on, on Friday. Myself, my brother-in-law, his best friend, who also happens to be my realtor, we got paired off with a single. Lovely kid named Nick. Shout outs to Nick, who was 31, so younger than all of us, significantly younger than me. And he is hitting as far as we are off the tee with our drivers with his four iron. And that's essentially what this fight felt like to me. At at a certain point, Li Jingliang is just like, all right, old man, here's what I got. And catches him. And it just happens. And I agree with your... God, what would this guy have looked like at 24 or even at 30? But unfortunately, those days have sailed by and Muslim Salikov's winning streak is now a thing of the past. 
you know, shake out here and reset because we're about to talk about Matt Schnell and Sumer Darji, and and I sort of need to get into because sweet suffering Jesus was this a fight? I mean, Matt Schnell has to be related to Wolverine. There has to be some adamantium in his frame somewhere because at multiple points in the second round, he was stood up to the point of being frozen in place for not not an insignificant beat of time, whether it was by left hands or whether it was by absolutely phenomenal short-framed elbows. And yet, Matt Schnell punched Sumudarji in the face and stunned him, put him on the deck, climbed into mountain, did the thing that Harry wants to see more people do, smash home punishment, kind of, you know, made a little tactical mistake, got reversed, but then fires up a triangle and gets to finish. This was one of the wildest comebacks I've seen in my lifetime of covering this sport. Match now, like there were three points where I thought, this fight's over. Jacob Montalvo, just get in there and, and save this kid. And yet every time I thought that, Schnell kind of did the little reset and then he was back after it. This was bonkers. This is one of those ones that if we were watching on a stream together, you'd have been screaming and like asking all kinds of questions in caps as you were texting me. Just, I'm I'm just going to lay out here and let you, let you have fun. I mean, firstly, let's put a little bit more respect on Matt Schnell's name. He didn't just finish a man. He put that motherfucker to sleep, right? He cut his face to bits, made him leak a whole lot of blood, and <sighs> then put him to sleep. Yeah, and then asked him to, you know, tell me what his dreams are, you know? Like, it was... It was unbelievable. It was absolutely unbelievable. I tweeted afterwards. Uh, let me just pull up that tweet because I, I, I'm going to quote myself poorly. Uh, so I say that fight is everything we love about MMA. Technical proficiency, heart, grit, durability, and just an absolutely beautiful display of fighting. Right. And the reason why is we saw some fights, right, on that card tonight where people make mistakes and then it's capitalized. Right. There wasn't many mistakes made in this fight. You know, Somadadri was just better. Right. He was just better. He found the reads, he made the reads, and he capitalized them. It wasn't necessarily Matt Schnell being poor or making mistakes or whatever. It was just Sumadajri being better. And then Matt Schnell was like, yeah, all this is fun. I'm having a great time. But actually, I can recover way faster than you can. And there's absolutely very little that you're going to be able to do to get me out of here. And now I'm going to put you to sleep. Just absolutely fucking raw bastardly <laughs> unbelievable you know like yes he did the right things in threatening chokes yes he did the right things in threatening positional dominance and, and landing shots when he got there yes he made a bit of a mistake and got reversed these things happen in mma but he looked for the same triangle earlier on and couldn't quite get to it he got to a trap triangle he didn't get to a full triangle but this time when he got to the triangle, you were like, 
oh, this is slightly different now. This is slightly different. He cut the angle beautifully. He did well to oscillate between pushing the arm across and making sure the arm was in the right angle to then making sure that he was cutting the angle to finish the triangle and making sure he could land strikes if he needed to and making sure that he didn't, you know, have this man's blood pour into his eye holes. And he even had the audacity to look at the ref and be like, just so you know, this motherfucker's asleep. By the way, he's he's having a nap. People are on their feet and he can hear this man snoring. It was wild. So in the finishing sequence, in the finishing choke, I don't know if you had mute on or not, or if you were in the stream talking to Ian and not listening to the commentary, they were talking about it being set up or it was being on the wrong side. I've never thrown up a, a triangle choke on anybody my visual remembrance of it just from other times is that it was kind of the wrong connection, but he made it work. Walk me through what's supposed to happen and how he makes that work to get that finish. Okay. Okay. So uh, how a triangle essentially works or should work uh, is you have one side of your body, one side of your leg, pressing into the carteroid artery and you have your other leg squeezing somebody's shoulder into the other carteroid artery and you essentially cut off the blood supply to the brain that's why you go to sleep right it's not a pain choke uh like some guillotines are for instance or some neck cranks are or sometimes like a dars or an anaconda can be it's not a pain choke it's a very what's called clean choke uh and it's just squeezing the sides of your neck until you go go sleep sleeps now the reason why they called it that it was on the wrong side is because schnell's hamstring that was doing the pressing was on the side of the shoulder generally that's not the done thing uh generally it's, it's the other way around right the best way i can describe it to you is a way that that ryan hall funnily enough teaches triangles and traditionally, triangles are taught that your hips are square to the line of their shoulders. You squeeze your legs together so your abductors are doing the squeezing. And then you're pulling the head generally into their own arm, right? Generally, you feed the arm across the neck. One, because that means the shoulder is closest to the neck. But it also means that if a head comes down, the esophagus is over the bicep, tricep, whatever. And Ryan Hall's like, yeah, that's fucking dumb. Let me tell you why that's dumb. He was like, when you're walking, what are you doing? Essentially, you're pressing forwards with your hamstrings, right? You're essentially doing a bicycling motion with your hamstrings when you are walking. He's like, so why do you try and finish your triangle by squeezing this way? Like, it's not the strongest part of your limbs, right? So what Schnell was doing by cutting the angle is he's essentially having a scissoring motion with his legs rather than a squeezing motion. And it is a far cleaner, far tighter finish. Uh, one of my coaches at, at London Grapple, his name is Nathan Kay. He shows that choke without closing his legs in a triangle. You can finish a triangle choke without closing your legs. If you cut the angle and you create a bicycle movement or a scissoring movement, i.e. a push and a pull, 
So the hamstring pressure on the back of Sal uh, Somadadri's shoulder was causing enough pressure for that shoulder to go into the carotid artery. And then his secondary leg, the leg that was uh, on the neck, was pulling backwards enough to force that shoulder pressure and that carotid artery pressure to shut off. We must also take into account here the accumulation of damage that Sumadashri had gone under, right? When you're that damaged and this that durian, your brain already doesn't quite know where it is. You're tired, blood's rushing, your airwaves are a bit fucked up anyway because there's blood in them and a bit of scar tissue and whatever. So it's going to take less of a choke to put you out. But regardless, the, the two things that secured that choke for Matt Schnell was one, cutting the angle, and two, creating a scissor motion with his legs. This is why I lay out and give Harry the opportunity to do these things because he can educate us and make it clear why that works. So it's not necessarily that it's the wrong side. It's a different application than traditional. Certainly worked. We saw how effective it was. Match now puts him out. Go ahead, sir. And one thing I just will fill on. Uh, it's certainly not the most efficient way, right? He would have got a cleaner, quicker finish if he'd have had his legs in, in right. the, on the original or traditional uh, right. entanglement, right? I still think you should cut the angle and still use the scissoring motion. It's a far quicker finish. But having his hamstring flat to the the the, 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 the bare side of Somadadri's neck would have been what he wanted, but that's just not how it, it, it ended right. up. So move on to the other featherweight fight on the main card. Shane Burgos gets a majority decision win. Over Charles Jordan, Harry is blowing kisses to the screen because this is one that we are going to sit down and get into a little bit. Now, I will state off the top, as I did to him when we were talking during this fight, I probably have a little bias here. I talked to Charles Jordan before most of his fights. I like him. He is French-Canadian. I am Canadian. He is from Montreal. Most of my extended family lives about 45 minutes away. So we have some connections. I like the guy. And I thought he did enough to get the win. He did not. And here we are. What did you like about Shane Burgos's performance? Let's start there. I'm going to let you start, and then I will counter this time. Okay. So I liked a couple of things from Shane Burgos. Specifically who you want to rename... Yes, I do. Shane, body triangle Burgos. Burgos. Never mind Absolutely. the hurricane. Absolutely. Yeah, forget the hurricane. It's a shit name. Um, okay. So, to me, Shane Burgos has a tendency to get into wars. He has a tendency to lean on his chin a lot. He has a tendency to find ways to drag fights into messy sometimes detrimental to his health affairs, right? That's not going to prove uh, long in the tooth for his career, yeah? And I think that there are lots and lots and lots of benefits for him changing his style and leaning on parts of his game that are actually very good that we don't see, right? One of those things is his ability to grapple. So the first thing that I was really impressed with is one, Charles Jordan 
is absolutely no joke on the ground. Ask Landover Natter, right? So for Burgos to go in and have the confidence and the guile to take a man into realms that he is supposedly very strong from. Now, don't get me wrong. Not many people are strong from you in a back body lock or when you've climbed on their back in a body triangle. Not many people are very strong from there. We saw Charles Jordan survive pretty well, not take a ton of damage, eat a couple of neck cranks. These things happen in MMA. But the thing I was impressed with is Burgos's ability to go out there and be like, one, you're a good grappler? Cool, let's find out. Two, I'm not going to, and this is the first two rounds, I'm not just going to stand here and use my face to block punches. I'm going to go out there, I'm going to beat you smartly. I'm going to go to a position where it's really hard for you to deal significant damage on me, but it's a lot easier for me to search for finishes against you, right? I felt he used his physicality. He used his experience. His pressure footwork caused Jordan to bite on things too early and Shane would duck under and find his way to the back body. I thought that was gorgeous, beautiful, intelligent fighting. I thought the big brothering that Shane Burgos was putting out was causing Jordan all types of problems. The head kicks from Jordan, I don't think were getting the reactions that he wanted. Burgos was not taking a back step. Burgos was uh, punishing Jordan for the high kicks with chopping Achilles kicks that made him take a step back or body kicks, some kicks he would catch and then try and run him down or whatever. He was just telling Jordan, like, all this shit you've got for me is great. I'm just better everywhere, right? And then the third round happened. And do you want me to stop here or do you want me to No, no, on? continue. Then we saw Shane Burgos just revert back to Shane Burgos things. And he comes out and he doesn't look for any grappling until the very, very last. He just blocks punches with his face. And it blows my mind away. I understand in the post-fight press interview, whatever, conference, whatever, he said to DC that the reason he didn't go back to the grappling is because his legs were tired. Now, look, having grappled a little bit myself, I understand if you're holding a body triangle, not just holding a body triangle, but holding a body triangle when somebody is stood up, it puts a lot of lactic acid in your legs. It causes a lot, a lot, a lot of fatigue in your legs. But I would have thought that you'd prefer fatigue in your legs than years off your life. That's just an assumption. It wasn't until Charles Jordan made yet another mistake in a performance that to me was laden with mistakes in the first two rounds and then in the, in the third round laden with mistakes from Burgos. But he threw the flying knee when he had Burgos a little bit on skates, a little bit hurt, a little bit not really sure that how these last 50 seconds were going to go. He throws the flying knee, Burgos is able to get behind him and we are where we are for the final couple of seconds. I felt as though for the scoring for me, as you know, I don't do scoring. If anyone wants to talk scoring, you can talk to Sean Sheehan, you can talk to Spencer, you can talk to uh, you can talk to Ben Cartledge, these are men for scoring. Round one was a close round, but I felt like because of the positional dominance, and I'm not scoring it on positional dominance, but I just think because Burgos had a couple of net cranks, you have to score that as offense, not exactly effective because it wasn't anywhere near a finish, but it forced 
Charles Jordan to defend the position, which to me is is offense. He landed a couple of shots from the back, whatever, whatever. And there was it was even enough on the feet. So I have no problem. And equally, getting to the back and threatening those things is is effective positional grappling, right? In my book. Now, where so I'm happy to see that 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 round scored for for Burgos. I see an argument for for Jordan, but I scored it for Burgos. The second round was absolutely not a 10-8. Uh, I quote Sean Sheehan in he's told me before, if you have to question whether a round is a 10-8, it's not. Yeah. There was absolutely no way that was a 10-8. Burgos came nowhere near to finishing him. Yes, he had a duration of domination for sure. He had the back body lock for a long time, but there was no damage. There was very little damage. Uh, damage, duration, and domination. Dominance. Right. Yeah, yeah, dominance. So positionally dominant, definitely. Damage domination, no. Duration of positional dominance, definitely. Like duration of damage, no. It, it's not a 10-8 in anyone's book. The last round, I also think it's not a 10-8, and it's not a 10-8 because Jordan, one, allowed Burgos back into the round in that last minute, and it's not a 10-8 because, to me, a 10-8 is a one-sided beatdown, and it wasn't exactly one-sided. It was like 80%, 20%. Like, to me, a 10-8 is I'm just getting fucking hockey-pucked around the gaff. I think if that last minute doesn't go the way it does, there's a there's a much stronger case. Right. Well, there you go. And so I don't disagree with anything you said there. Like, I think all of what you said in that, in that first part about Shane Burgos's performance, I like the fact that he's recognizing, hey, I'm just a bigger dude here. I'm just a bigger human being. And Charles Rodin being 5'6", and, you know, you asked me, could he get down to 35? I don't know. But seeing those two guys in there, you go, Oof, these are these are different sized men. And Shane Burgos went, we are different sized men. And I'm going to make this dude feel that. It's actually, to me, an underrated weapon in the sport. It's an underrated tool in this sport. More people could learn to assert their just physical presence. It doesn't even have to be through landing anything. Just a physical presence you saw the way Charles Jordan started that fight. He was jittery. He was backing up. He was stumbling into the fence because he was like, this dude doesn't seem like he wants to just go and stand in the center and trade like I thought we were going to. Now I've got to deal with this big human being walking me down. On the scoring front, I think, and, and Shane Burgos got a 10-8 from one of the judges for the second round. To me, if you're scoring that a 10-8, then, then what Charles Jordan did in the third needs to be a 10-8 as well. It is what it is. I think there are... This is a fight to me that if Charles Jordan is going to be anywhere near the best version of himself, this will be a turning point fight. This will be a great big learning lessons, teachable moments fight that his coaches will sit down with him and they will say, here's all the stuff. Because there were mistakes early and then there was the mistake late. And if he gets 
gets rid of those mistakes. Like we don't know obviously what would happen in that final minute, but I tell you what, he was beating the face off of Shane Burgos and it was getting more dominant. It was getting to be bigger shots and cleaner shots and twisting the head around. And so if he doesn't take that flying attempt, is he able to land the one or two more shots or a knee to the body like we saw he was doing earlier in the round that puts Burgos down and, and we're having a different discussion. The key here, and this is the takeaway, this is the thing I will be watching for next time out. It's going to be another tough fighter because I don't think his stock drops all that much from a fight like this. Maybe you take a little half step back. You're not fighting another top 15 opponent, but you're still in that range of emerging young fighters. Does he grow from this? Does he build from this? Does he correct those mistakes? Some fighters are able to, some fighters not so much. I I just don't know. I just don't know. Because it felt to me it felt to me as though we've 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 kind of seen the blueprint, you know? The blueprint is pressure. And it feels to me like, you know, the guy that out-pressured Burgos said some Barbosa, right? Is there a guy, and I know that MMA math doesn't work and I'm not really and truly trying to do this, but are there guys in that division that can put the pressure on that Shane Burgos can, that aren't Shane Burgos? Yeah. Are there dudes in that division who are as big physically as Shane Burgos and know how to use it? Yeah. Are there guys in that division that know uh, how to not use their face as a blocking mechanism? Yeah, there are. Yeah. Like, I think there's a very serious... And look, I am not advocating for weight cutting in any way, shape, <laughs> or form. But in the, I also have to be realistic. Right. The realism here is you stay at 145 and you have a couple of fights for sure. Let's see where it goes. But there comes a point, and we've talked about this in other fights, and I'm sure we'll talk about this in, in fights going forward, where athleticism and physicality is a real, real thing, right? And it's a real thing that there are times when you just can't out-technique these things. The way I look at it is it's like stats bar on a game, right? If your technique stats is at 60 and their athleticism and their technique stats are at 40, but your athleticism is at 35 and their athleticism is at 95, that might just be enough for them to, to beat your technique, right? And when it comes to physicality, it's similar. Like it looks like a 170er fighting a 145er in there. That's what it looked like. Shane Burgos is back in his traps at absolutely ginormous, right? And the way that he was able to move Jordan around, who knew exactly what was happening in those exchanges on the back, but just could not do anything technique or strength-wise to stop it. Nothing. He survived. Yeah, just physically can't contend. Move a guy. These are highly trained, highly skilled, highly muscled, highly conditioned athletes, right? And I think 
there is a very, very real conversation for Charles Jordan to have about where he fits in that featherweight division. We will have the technique versus athleticism or technique athleticism sort of dichotomy conversation in a couple of fights before we get out of the main card. Warren Murphy goes out and spoils Misha Tate's flyweight debut. Unanimous decision, 30-27 twice, 29-28 once. From the jump, Lauren Murphy, and we said this going in, every, every we were all, the talking points were, Misha comes in, she gets a win, she's probably fighting for a title, this is her way to fast track, but don't get it twisted. Lauren Murphy is a tough out, she's going to be in your face from the get-go, and you've got to work really hard to beat her. And Lauren Murphy went out from word go and was like, nah, bitch, this, this ain't happening. Like, you're not coming down here and just getting through me to go fight for a title. Now, whether whatever illness she had, she had C. difficile apparently going into the fight with, with Valentina Shevchenko, it is a gastrointestinal knot. It just, it sucks huge. Whether that played a significant factor in that fight, we will never know, or we, we may know somewhere down the road if they cross paths again. But on Saturday night, Lauren Murphy looked like the best version of Lauren Murphy ever. And she did it with, it wasn't just the grit. I think her hands looked better. I think she looked crisper and and kind of, she looked, as I said to you, she is somebody that every time she goes into the cage, she looks like she is out there for a fight. And Misha Tate looked like somebody that had kind of gotten roped into having a fist fight. And didn't quite fully really want to maybe be there or have the, the meanness. Just the, just the want to that you have to have, especially at the highest levels, against somebody that got embarrassed last time out. And Lauren Murphy exploited the hell out of that on Saturday. This is something that I struggle with quite a lot. Like on the podcast and the preview show and stuff, I am fine with, you know, jokingly calling fighters shit houses or this or that or the next thing or whatever. It's hard but important for me to to tell the truth about a fighter. And this is something that Shawnee says we must do, right? And that's if a fighter performs poorly, you have to say the fighter performed poorly right Misha Tate is not who Misha Tate used to be right now you know look she is a mother of two children she is a wife she is a person that has uh had multiple different roles she has been in multiple different places she is in a very, very different spot to the Misha Tate she was when she was coming up chasing her title, right? But in there, I think the way that you framed it was very, very good. And that's that she looked as though she was more concerned with happenings outside of the cage than what was happening inside of the cage. And that is a real real problem because when you're in there fighting somebody who is hungry chomping at the bit to go and prove 
herself in Lauren Murphy, somebody who is incredibly tough, incredibly durable, and that actually came in with a pretty solid game plan and executed that game plan for the most part very, very well. You have to be able to show me something interesting. And coming in, the rhetoric to this, all the commentary team was saying was the cut was amazing. She was perfectly this, perfectly that, putting all this time into grappling, all this time into... I didn't see it. I did not see it. What I saw was some attempts to grapple that were very easily reversed from Lauren Murphy. I saw somebody that looked like they were wilting from a conditioning perspective, whether that was uh, conditioning or will, one and the same in this fight, the way that it looked to me. It looked like she did not have a plan B. It looked like the foundational bones of her game, which was toughness and grit and just being in your face and doing the Lauren Murphy thing had completely dissipated. And what we were left with was a woman who was standing in a cage against somebody that wanted to win a fight and she just did not want to lose. This is one of the reasons to me why we sort of accentuate regularly that what happens in the gym and all that you hear about coming out of the gym and who you're knocking out in the best sessions and this, that, and the other only weigh so much, only count for so much. And it's really not that much because I'm sure that Misha Tate looked phenomenal going into this and was in tremendous shape. She looked good on the scale. I think she was the first person on the scale on Friday. And so to be able to get down there at this stage of her career after two kids, after fighting a bantamweight for so long, great. But she was getting in a fist fight on Saturday afternoon and looked like she had no interest in getting in an actual fucking fist fight. And that's a real difficult thing because Lauren Murphy wants to get in a fist fight. Lauren Murphy wants to get in a fist fight probably every day. If you would let her, she would get in a fist fight every day because she just wants to prove herself that badly always. And so I'm often very hesitant to suggest fighters should move on, fighters should get out of the sport, things like that. But what I will say here is what I said to you during our messaging watching this fight. It has now been proven in Misha Tate's last two fights that she is not a top contender anymore in either of those divisions. I don't know that she wants to go through the grind that it is to prove herself and get back there. And so if that's the case, it would make complete sense to me if in a couple months' time we had an announcement from Misha Tate that, you know, this was fun. I'm glad I was able to come back. I got that one win over Mari, and it was a good win. I was happy to get one. My kids could see me get a win, but it's time to move on. She's certainly somebody that could potentially have a future on the broadcast side of things. She previously did a bunch of work for one championships over in Singapore. That, I'm sure is still an option. As far as I know, those bridges weren't burned. But I just don't know, like the fighter we saw on Saturday, if you just go through and start doing the like, okay, match her up, up and down, up and down the weight class. 
Like, does that person want to fight Aaron Blanchfield? Does that person want to fight somebody young and hungry like Macy Barber that's looking to make a name off of her? Does that person want to fight Alexa Grosso, who's going to bounce on the balls of her feet and pick her apart? Like, I don't think so. And so does she want to go up and face, you know, middle of the pack fighters at, at bantamweight? What's, what's the value of that at this point of her life, given what she's accomplished, given her legacy and place in this sport? I'm not saying she has to walk away. Obviously, there are options. You can always go the Jim Miller route and say, look, I just want to continue to compete. So I know I'm not going to face the best contenders. Move me down the line. Fine. More power to you if that's what you want to do. And you're able to have that very difficult conversation with yourself. But what I saw Saturday night is a fighter that is no longer in a position to face top five talent in either of these divisions and didn't look like she wanted to be in there. I couldn't agree more. I, I, I honestly don't think I could say much more. Like at the end of the day, this is a, this is a very difficult, very sad at times conversation to be having. And we have to, we have to be very, very, very specific on the words that we use here. Misha Tate has given us a lot of her life and has progressed female MMA in a way that not many others have or could. She's transcended MMA in certain aspects and has brought class and dignity and decorum with a lot of the way that she's carried herself throughout these years in MMA. She's not stooped to maybe using some of her uh, womanly abilities to further MMA like other people have, at least not to the extent that other people have. Um, and I think that we should be very, very, very cognizant of what she's done for MMA. But at the end of the day, it's my job, it's your job, it's our job at Severe MMA to tell you when a fighter looks like they do not want to be fighting anymore. And like you said, I absolutely am not asking her to walk away from the sport, but I might be asking her to think about whether she wants to be in the cage anymore. Yeah. She, she took some damage on Saturday. She's had her nose broken a bunch of times. Looks like it was broken again on Saturday. It, it's just time to sit and have that long conversation and have that very important conversation. And we'll leave it at that. We shift to the prelims, which closed out with Punahele Soriano getting a second round stoppage win over Dolce Lungiambula. Not a lot for me. I mean, it, it sort of went the way I expected it to go. I think Pune is a better fighter. I think he is a superior prospect, if you can even put that title on a 34-year-old guy like Lungiambula, who has, you know, one hitter quitter power, but they come single shots, and and really that's about it. Anything that you saw here that you want to talk about, or should we just keep moving forward? The fight happened. Fair enough. We move forward to one that we definitely want to talk about that I said we would get to because I feel like this is this is where the athleticism versus technical and the differences between the two really was on display. Ricky Simone hands Jack Shore the first loss of his career, arm triangle choke in the second round. 
in a fight that really was, I'm a better athlete than you. You're doing all the things correctly. You you haven't made any mistakes, but you just can't get me off of you because I am stronger, I am more physical, and I'm the superior athlete. And in situations like this, there are times where just being the better athlete is going to win. Ricky Simone maximized that, takes Jack Shore's O, and keeps pressing forward at bantamweight. Yeah, this is a sad one. This is a sad one because it, to me, shows that there are epochs of MMA and we are staring in our shuttling forward, hurling forward through space-time. We are staring back at a universe that used to exist that at this point the light is fading and we're going to very, very, very quickly not see anymore and it will cease to exist in the nothingness and the dust clouds of space. And that's the technique used to win you fights. Um, over the last little while, MMA has had an influx of supremely uh, gifted athletes that have then gone about gaining the skills and doing the things and getting the experience to bolt on to that athleticism. A controversial one is Greg Hardy, right? Absolute top of the food chain, A++++++ athlete. Unbelievable athlete. They taught him to do a little bit of the striking and none of the wrestling. But you could see just in the way he moved that something was just different about that man. There are, obviously, Ricky Simone is not an A++++++ athlete. He may be a B-plus athlete, but that's fine. The standard level of entry now in MMA, and Sean and I spoke about this on a speaker's corner before, is not just well-roundedness everywhere and jack shaw proved that last night last night jack shaw proved to us that you could be seemingly the all-round superior fighter but speed athleticism dynamism and power can sometimes bridge that gap there were moments in those exchanges where I think you saw written on Jack's face, I'm doing the right things, but this motherfucker just won't get off me. I think we saw in the movements, you saw, I think, the technical proficiency of Jack in the footwork, in his ability to land the jab, in his ability to uh, move away from the dangerous shots of Ricky Simone. But I think the reason we saw Jack overcommit on the right hand was because he was telling himself, I need to stick this motherfucker with something to make him calm down. The jab alone is not going to do it. I've been able to keep him off me from the defensive grappling perspective. He's not taken me down in a vast array. When he did dump him, Jack was up to his feet really, really quickly, really easily. Didn't look phased by the double leg. Was absolutely fine. No problem. He got back to his feet. He disengaged. And then Ricky was just right back on him. And that, to me, 
is a real, real shame for Jack Shaw. Yeah, it feels like this sets a bit of a ceiling for Jack Shore. And like, same as you, been a big fan from the Cage Warriors days throughout the UFC run. He is somebody I have written about and, and shouted about a lot because doing what he did up to this point of going 16-0 and as a pro and 12-0 and as an amateur is very, very rare and deserves all the kudos in the world. But I think you're 100% correct on the right hand. I think you saw it in his face. You saw it in the way he was he was acting in the cage. I have to hit this guy with something that gets him off me, that really, truly backs him up. Because the jab was great, and Ricky Simone said it afterwards, of like, yep, he was sticking me with that jab. But it didn't do enough to like really back him off and make him question going forward. And as soon as he figures that part out, it's just... Ricky Simone, he, it's like he, I think he ate one in the middle of that round or early in that, you know, duration of the middle of what remained of that round. And then was just kind of like, oh, well, I'm still standing right here. So I could just go. And then that's when he went and he big scoop takedown just all over him from there out. And it really was, it really is. Sometimes you can have all the technique in the world. You can have all the technical proficiency. This other dude's just just stronger and better and bigger. Like, I don't. In, in some ways, it's almost like the the Jordan Burgos fight. Shane Burgos was just a giant human being compared to just a bigger, stronger, faster, more proficient at what they do in many ways. And this was this was the litmus test for Jack Shore. It didn't work out. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll push back slightly on the better comment. Like, I actually think that. It didn't look to me, yes, Jack Shaw was making mistakes over committing on the right hand. I'm with you. But it felt in the Burgos fight as though he was he was doing things to force the mistakes from a technical perspective. Right. Fair. Rather than just going in and being like, la di da di da di da di da. Right. Oh, let's drop this double on you and there's fuck all you can do about it. Right. Um, but I absolutely see the parallels. Yeah, I mean better in the sense, like not better in the sense that Jack Shaw's trash and guard like just better in the sense of like at the end of the day if these guys fought a hundred times from the evidence we saw on saturday you have to give ricky simone a very clear edge now he's not going to win 100 of those 100 fights but it's probably 75 of them and there's 25 where jack lands something good and you know, weird shit happens and MMA happens and things like that. But on a night to night, these two against each other, Ricky Simone just has elements to him that trounce what Jack Shore is able to do. And we saw that on Saturday. It's unfortunate the tank falls out of the, the ranks of the undefeated. We had a tweet from one Ian Gary about that, mentioning that there's only 24 left, he being one of them. Kudos. I'm sure somebody will keep that for freezing cold takes later on when Ian Gary gets bounced from the ranks of the unbeaten because you're going to get bounced from the ranks of the unbeaten, Ian. You're not going to the top of that division without catching a loss. I'm sorry. It's not happening. But we move forward. Bill Algio gets a second-round TKO win by retirement when Herbert Burns just 
I don't know if he refused. I don't know if he was incapable. I don't know if he was exhausted, but he just did not get up when called to his feet. Bill Algio weathers a very dangerous, precarious position throughout the first round. And it seemed that as soon as he escaped that, Herbert Burns was like, I got nothing left, man. So just, just have at her. This is, this is yours the rest of the way. I've got this one go in me and you managed to get out. So now I'm fucked. Yeah, possibly. I mean, it's, I I really don't even know if I can give an opinion because I don't even know if I have one is the honest answer. Like the, don't get me wrong. That triangle looked fucking tight. Yep. Now, Bill Algio was doing the right things. He was stacking burns. He was making sure that he had enough room to breathe. He was tucking his chin. He was, look, I'm not telling you it was comfortable in there because it definitely wasn't comfortable in there. But he was doing enough to keep himself safe. And he was doing, not safe, he was doing enough to survive whilst taking the preventative measures of stacking burns, making sure he was squared up, ensuring that burns didn't have a really tight angle for the reasons we talked about before. He was making sure that his arm wasn't getting arm barred and his elbow wasn't in the line of the hip and all of these things. And then eventually, 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 Burns's grip of the triangle started to loosen. The stacking became more effective. Algio was able to strip the grip of the, the triangle and escape. Now, You're right that from there, Burns looked deflated and defeated. But afterwards, we've seen a video of him uh, on crutches in a leg brace. Is that an injury that happened during the triangle? Is that an injury that happened prior to the fight? And it was just exacerbated by the triangle? Who knows? So the reason he's been out, this was his first fight in in nearly two years. I think his last fight before this was Daniel Pineda in August of, of 2020. The reason he's been out, he had ACL surgery, he had a full, complete repair. And so the worry is in the the talk afterwards is that he's now done it again. And so that could be certainly understandably part of it. But it also looked, I mean, his brother Gilbert had to coax him off of the, he had to coax him to the stool and off of the stool. So there's a conversation to be had there of, Hey man, your your kid brother is sitting in front of you and is basically saying, nah, I don't want to go back out there and fight. And you're saying, no, you're going to go fight. Maybe we have a different conversation. Maybe we, maybe we don't send him back out there. If that's where he's at, if that's what he's like, was anything going to change? It went the way we expected it to. And there was a brief moment where he looked like he was maybe going to get some kind of leg lock in that second round. But Bill Algio is a black belt. He's been a black belt for a long time. He is a very good grappler. Extricated his leg and just beat the hell out of Gilbert Burns. Or not Gilbert Burns, my apologies. Herbert Burns. That would have been a turn up for the books. That would have been a turn up. And so it just felt to me like if it is the injury, fine, give him a pass. But also this is now two ACLs in two fights or in two years. At 33, I believe, 34 maybe, Gilbert Burns, Herbert Burns, I keep doing it. Gonna be a gonna be a, a long road back and a long, long set of questions to ask yourself after an effort like that and another injury. Yeah, I mean 
I just, I just, don't, I just don't know. Yep. It's just too hard to, to to really give an opinion. I think the the triangle was was very tight. Don't get me wrong, yep. but the preceding submissions uh, were just less and less and less tight. And look, I don't think heel hooks in MMA are all that viable for a plethora of reasons. One, because uh, whilst maybe guys aren't as uh, au fait with the technical nuances of how to defend them. I don't think there's anyone that's not named Ryan Hall or maybe Gilbert that has uh, brilliant heel hooks, in at least in the UFC. Uh, Gamrot probably is in there. Marcin Held at one point had wicked heel hooks. Right. Tonin obviously is a fantastic leg locker. But I don't think... Um, I don't think they're so widely studied in MMA that they are hyper-effective. Right. Especially when one of the primary breaking mechanics of a heel hook is a bridge and a scissor mechanic with your legs. If it's true that his ACL was blown, it was going to be super hard for him to get the the necessary mechanical tightness to tap somebody like a Bill Algio. Um, yeah. yeah, it's tough. The one other thing I will say, and I tweeted it out during the fight, Bill Algio to me is a perfect representation of why I think fighting a tough road in a very good regional promotion is an exceptional thing for any hopeful emerging fighter to do. He fought for CFFC. He fought for Ring of Combat before that. He's got some losses. He had some tough fights, but it puts you in a position where when you get this opportunity, you're already a tough bastard. You've already been through a bunch of shit and you're able to go through a bunch of shit as opposed to beating a bunch of guys on your local show that are just there to make you look good or don't have a technical or physical ability to beat you. And I'm not saying they're hand-picked cans. You're just that much better than them. You're a 10 fighting a 6. That doesn't do you any good. The road Bill Algio took clearly prepared him for this, and he made the most of it. Light heavyweight fight, Dustin Jacoby knocks out Da Eun Jung in the first round. A fight that when I suggested on the preview show that I was interested in this one, Harry gave me his, what the hell are you talking about? Why are you interested in this face face? And my reason then is my the same reason I will touch on it here ever so briefly. And that is Dustin Jacoby is now 6-0-1 in seven fights since returning to the UFC. And regardless of who that's against and whatever we think of him, he's ranked in the light heavyweight division. It is a division where there are always needs for new names and, and ascending fighters. Dustin Jacoby is now one. And next time out, he is going to be facing someone you're familiar with, someone you're more familiar with than Da Eun Jung. And I mean, at this point for me, Part of my takeaway is I'm just in. I've bought my ticket. I'm now in on the Dustin Jacoby show from a standpoint of let's just see how far this dude can take it. Because his first two fights in the UFC many, many moons ago when he's fighting at middleweight, he's 0-2 and he's out. And he fights a couple times on the regional circuit and he goes and does kickboxing for a long time, has some success and comes back to MMA and he hasn't lost since. He's got a draw in there against Iwan Ion Kutilaba but other than that, it's been victories. It hasn't been all-star competition, but
but you can only beat the guy that's in front of you. And next time out, the guy that's in front of him is going to be Ryan Spann or Johnny Walker or the winner of the Paul Craig Vulcan Ozdemir fight, somebody in that vein. And I now want to see, like, let's just see how far the Hanyak can take this. Yeah, I still don't care too much, to be honest. Um, I uh, I just don't... Maybe this is brutal to say, but, like, I, I watched the fight specifically for the technical analysis of the fights, right. right? And there was not much in that performance. And maybe that's because Da'an Young did not perform very well. Uh, but there was not a ton that I saw from Dustin Jacoby that made me go and sit up and be like, that's new. That's interesting. I felt like Da'an Young was throwing very strange shots from very strange angles that did not look effective at all. And Jacoby was just, you know, a, a good enough fighter who would be able to go and do the thing. And he did the thing. And Dan Young got finished. I've got no problem with the stoppage, by the way. No problem. Yeah, me neither. You you go down like that, we're good. We can move on. We'll move on to the middleweights. Dustin Stoltzfus defeats Dwight Grant by unanimous decision. There's not a lot for me here. Happy to see Dustin Stoltzfus get his first UFC victory. Fought three better grapplers than he is in his first three appearances. Finally gets a guy that isn't a grappler. And lo and behold, he's able to grapple. That's all this was to me. Yourself? You were on the train. You didn't I was even see it. To watch it. Um, I'm, I will say, though, that Dwight Grant is somebody that brings me a lot of frustration. Yes. Because, as I've said to you before, I feel as though Dwight Grant is a fighter that could be interesting. He could show us some things that would be really, really cool if he was able to uh, sort of figure out himself a little better. It doesn't feel as though that's going to happen, which is a shame. Um, but yeah, pumped for Stolzfus to get his uh, to get his first to get his first one in the UFC. That's cool. Thirty five years old, probably not figuring a whole lot out, making a whole lot of wholesale changes going forward. The opener, Emily Ducote defeats Jessica Panay in a unanimous decision, 29-28, twice, thirty twenty seven. On the third card, I was all in on Emily Ducote when she when this fight was announced. When she arrived in the UFC, she was my fighter to watch this week. Told you, told everybody on the preview show, give me all of the stocks. I want all of the stocks. I'm ha- happily setting up a, a community on Dakota Island. I think this fight for me showed me exactly what I want to see from her. It affirmed to me that she is somebody that deserves to be in the top 15 in this weight class or amongst the best fighters in this weight class, but still has a room to grow and improve and and needs to still grow and improve because there were moments that that Jessica Panay had some success, but also that she has a base level of skill right now and base talent set that makes her really interesting to me going forward in this division. We didn't have to see any of her grappling in in this fight because she beat up the lead leg. She threw hands well. She took some she took some shots. I think that's also an important thing. Like there are just some fighters that when you see them in there and the other person's landing that counter and they don't go anywhere, there was no moment where Emily Ducote took a back step and sort of backed off 
to any real substance, like any real, like I've got to retreat and reset. It was just, all right, fine, back to what I do. And that's a real impressive, important thing to me when watching fighters, both in their debuts and in tough assignments like this. She didn't seem phased by this moment in the least. And that speaks volumes to me about her upside. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Jessica Benet is not an easy out for anyone, especially not in your UFC debut. Um, I was really, really impressed with the leg kicks. Uh, I was very impressed until Pene showed and realized that, fuck, this is a real problem. Because at that point, uh, how do you pronounce that lady's second name? Dakota. Thank you. When Emily Dakota started going to the well, Pene was like, oh, I see what's happening here. If I let her keep battering this leg, she might finish me. So it would have been nice to see Dakota hide some of those kicks somewhere else, maybe go to the body, maybe go up top, maybe no sell some kicks. She did a nice job of switching up to inside leg kicks, but equally she could have got Jessica Bonet out of there. Jessica Bonet was stumbling all over the gaff from some of those shots. And it looked as though if she'd landed just a couple more on the button, Pene would have been struggling to stand. So I think that's something to take away. That something is to have a little bit more in the arsenal on the feet, a little bit more variety, allowing you to set those up and land those low leg kicks. Because look, if you can damage somebody like that and you can do that to somebody of that level, Jessica Panay still investing in herself, still mixing up her training, still going to different places to get different looks. I think it's going to be, uh, that's a really, really interesting prospect that you have on your hands. But yeah, for sure, I would like to see her um, mix things up a little bit. I mean, I'm excited to see the grappling. I don't know a ton about Dakota, but if she can grapple, let's see it. Yeah, she got her black belt a couple of months ago um, from like not, it's not a disreputable black belt, I think is the nicest way I can say it. It is, it is a legit lineage black belt. Um, she's been working at it for a long time, so think that part is there as well um just a fighter that like the thing that i really like is that she has the opportunity here in this division to progress along without it being hurried there's no need to rush her there's tons of talent in straw weight she can move up incrementally but is already at a point where she doesn't have to go through the four or five fights against people that she's clearly better than and that we don't really put a whole ton of stock in, right? She doesn't have to have those fights that right now are limiting a guy like Arnold Allen that we talked about off the top, where he had to go through Alan Omer and Mads Burnell and a bunch of fights that didn't really register with people. Emily Ducote walked in and beat a former title challenger, beat her handily. She's now six and one in the division has an opportunity to move forward and is definitely somebody to keep an eye on going forward. Going forward from here, I will be back tomorrow with a Monday podcast that I haven't decided what I'm going to talk about yet. Since Harry and I will dive into interim titles somewhere down the line, I will stay away from that. We'll probably start talking a little bit about UFC London because that is our next opportunity to see action inside the Octagon back at the O2 next Saturday. Myself, Harry, Ian, and I believe Sean will be on the preview show on Thursday on the Severe MMA YouTube page. We will be going all out for this one. 
So definitely tune in. It is a good card. It's not as strong, I would say, as the first London visit, but still a good card with a bunch of interesting fights, a bunch of interesting assignments. Chance to talk about Muhammad Mokayev again. Chance to talk about Patty Pimlet, Nathaniel Woods coming back. Tom Aspinall's back. Paul Craig is back. Lots of good fights. But other than that, that kind of brings us to a close. We we kept this down to, to under 90 minutes. I thought we would go a little bit longer, so I'm happy we're able to knock it out. Happy that you're here to join us. Go follow Harry. Go read his stuff. The spotlight will come out Monday on Severe MMA. Follow him on Twitter at BJJ underscore Harry Powell. Sign up for the Severe MMA Patreon. You can hear him on Speaker's Corner, occasionally on Hot Topic, occasionally on the on the big show, as we like to call it, the Severe MMA Podcast, and of course on the previews. Follow me and all of my work at Spencer Kite on Twitter. Subscribe to this newsletter. Greatly appreciate all of you that currently do. Tell your friends. If you like this stuff, if you enjoy this stuff, please continue subscribing, liking, sharing, whatever. As always, the comments are available. We look forward to them, including the ones that tell me I made all the wrong choices on the main card, and then I went four and two with my picks. So shout out to SB for, for being incorrect and slandering me on Friday. It's all good, though. Appreciate your reading. And yeah, that's going to do it. We love you. We appreciate you being here. We hope you have a great week. Be good to one another. We'll see you next week.